Hello, it's Bernard Nomberg. Thank you for tuning in to another weekly edition of the Nomberg Law Live podcast. Each week we try to bring interesting people in their areas of expertise. And this is certainly a discussion this week that fits that bill. Atlanta-based attorney Megan Xavier is my guest. Megan practices law in California, commutes quite a bit, but what she does is she specializes in attorney ethics. She not only has an active practice in California, but she also has a great podcast, and we're going to get into all of those things. What a, what a fun conversation, what a meaningful discussion that we had that we think that you'll enjoy listening to. As we always do, we try to bring these episodes to you each Monday morning. So thank you for tuning in to Nomberg Law Live podcast. If you like this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating and a review and subscribing will ensure that you get each podcast as they come out on a weekly basis. Thank you again. I think we are now live. Good morning. It's or good afternoon. It's Bernard Nomberg with another weekly edition of Nomberg Law Live. And when she's not running marathons or obstacle course races, she's practicing law out of out of Alpharetta, Georgia. I want to welcome Megan Xavier. Good afternoon, Megan. How are you? Good afternoon, Bernard. I'm well. Thank you for having me. Well, it is absolutely my pleasure. You're somebody I've wanted to have on the show for quite a while. I've I've listened to your podcast. I've heard you speak in several different online sessions, and I'm very impressed with what I hear, and you've just got so much great information to share with not just lawyers, but the public as a whole. So thank you for the work that you do. Oh, thank you for saying that. Absolutely. Tell us, before we get into our topic in general, which is going to be attorney ethics, I want you to first of all tell people a little bit about yourself and include how does a person based in Alpharetta, Georgia, practice law in the state of California? Always a good question. So it actually kind of goes to tell, telling you a little bit about myself because I don't tend to do things the most traditional way, I guess is the best way to phrase it. Um, I've bounced around quite a bit. I'm originally from California, born and raised in the same house till I left for college. So I do have that bit of stability. But then I bounced from um, the Bay Area to Humboldt and way northern California to Oregon to Connecticut and back to California and over to New York and did lots and lots of moves and ultimately started practicing attorney ethics work when we were briefly back in California <laughs> and then left for Sydney, Australia, where I really launched the practice full bore. So, you know, put up a website and started taking, taking on outside clients from Sydney. And I just found that most of the work that I do can really be done from anywhere. And so when we moved to Georgia, the work just was so plentiful in California and I knew the system so well that I didn't see the need to change what I was doing just because we moved yet again. So I work you know, remotely, my clients, I mostly talk to by phone. When I need to, I've perfected the day trip to both San Francisco and LA. I guess coming out of the Atlanta airport, that's kind of a, is it a direct flight now to uh, out west? 
Yep, I can get to both places by mid-morning court appearances and home by midnight if I time it just right. Wow, isn't that amazing how mobile our society has become to allow you to do something like that? Yeah, absolutely. There was a time well, that just would have been impossible. Well, certainly, certainly. I know you're a very busy person. You've got a, a, a big family and a lot of a lot of kids doing a lot of things. We but do. talk to me a little bit. Tell us, how did you get into such a niche area of the law? You don't find, or I don't find, a lot of attorneys who focus on attorney ethics, which is so such a cornerstone for any person with a law license who practices. And frankly, it, yeah. it, it transfers to any profession, but we're talking about the law here. But how did you get into that niche of the law? Well, it is very narrow, that's true, and there's not a whole lot of us doing it. Um, but I got involved in it through a family member who needed assistance. And so that was within my actual legal career, how I first started doing any of the ethics work. But be even before that, before law school, I had always wanted to help lawyers. My original intention was to become a psychiatrist treating lawyers, which I believe would have been a very, very busy practice. <laughs> um, and that, so that was my original intention. I even went to law school with plans to go to med school. So I was going to do one uh, right after the other. And I ended up not doing that right away. And as time went on, med school became more and more difficult to start once we wanted to have a family. I didn't really want to go back to being at the bottom of the totem pole again. And um, you know, felt like I had done enough of that in law. So then when the opportunity came to start helping lawyers in the ethics field, it was like, yes, this is how this all comes together. And I just really love working with other lawyers. So from a little tiny entry into it, I just found myself you know, really enjoying the work. And so it blew up into a full career. Do you, do you remember one of your early cases, obviously not with names, but what the subject was about or how you handled one of your first cases that really got you hooked? Well, definitely. Um, one of my very first ones, I think, I think it was my very first paying client. That tells you uh, <laughs> when you work for family, it's not always paying work. Uh, but when right. I did my well, you pay pain. you pay in other ways, but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, exactly, for life. Um, but I, I started with my first paying client, went all the way to trial. And, you know, so many of our cases don't. It's, you know, a very small percentage of our cases get tried. And so for that to have been my first one, and I remember I was pregnant, my suit didn't quite fit, and I was trying to make everything work, and I'm feeling my way through. And my client was one of the most grateful, just really wonderful people. I actually got a thank you note from his mother after the trial. Um, and he was disbarred. I mean, I lost in that sense. Um, but we always knew he would be. That was There was never really much chance that, you know, there was, there was a legal question. And it, either one way it was disbarred, one way he was fine. And it went against us in another court. And we were stuck with that ruling. So we knew. But there were wins along the way in terms of keeping him in practice as long as possible. And it taught me so much about like what, what does a win actually look like and listening to your client and hearing their goals. And the subject matter was super interesting. It had to do with a trust and estates matter and whether it was a trust that controlled the decedent's estate or a will, which had you know fully, completely different realm of litigation that was happening that had nothing to do with me but as it came back around to the attorney, under one 
determination, he could take his attorney's fees without court approval. Under the other, he could not. And so we were in limbo. Like he was either fine if we if they win in this other case that we don't have any control over, or we're screwed if they lose. <laughs> So that case must have made a real impact on you. Oh, it did. It did. Um, and that was where I found that outside of family members, you know, connecting with a client, another lawyer could be so rewarding. I just love that aspect of my work of working with other lawyers and being part of a team with your client, which sure. as I sure. work with clients who represent non-lawyers, you know, that can be very different. Well, I've got a question here from Mark in Minnesota is asking, when people learn the type of work that you do and who you represent, how do other lawyers treat you? Meaning, and this is my ad, do they tiptoe around you? Do they want to be your best friend? How do they, do they treat you any differently than other lawyers might? Well, it, that's an interesting one because it definitely gets reactions. You know, I get that, oh, I hope I never need you, or oh, I don't want to have to know you. Um, I also get the opposite of, oh, you're a good person to know. I get a lot of, oh, I have this problem, which I always figure doctors must get, you know, I've got this mole. Um, <laughs> so I get a lot of those. But mostly people um, are happy to know that there's somebody like me out there because I think most lawyers recognize that at some point they're either going to have an actual bar problem or a question or a difficult client that could lead to one. And they're glad to know that people actually exist who specialize in this stuff. And, and along those lines, Megan, with the understanding that you practice law in California, pursuant to California law, I'm going to ask you in general for some best practice tips that practitioners, that lawyers who have an active license and are trying to follow their state specific bar rules, regulations, we're looking for some general best practice ideas from you, if you can share some. Sure. So one would be simply being in touch with your clients on a regular basis. You know, treat your clients as a member of a team handling their matter. They're not just your paycheck and then you take the job and go run with it. So many bar issues could be avoided if you were just having better communication with clients. And find a way to automate some of that. You know, I think a lot of lawyers find that burdensome and they say, well, I can't call every client every week. Well, they actually aren't looking for that. But an email update once a month and you can totally use technology to make that a very simple process. Um, anything you can do to make it so that your client feels like they are valued and part of the team handling their matter is going to go so far to avoiding bar complaints. Another is making sure your fee agreements are clear and in writing. And you know, most states have rules requiring writings at least over certain thresholds, but even if you're under those thresholds, fee agreements should just be written because a lot of disputes come down to, well, I thought you said you would do this, or I thought I had paid you everything I was going to have to, and not that clients like it if we go, well, in the fine print that was, you know, read super fast at the end of the car commercial, we said, you know, but if you can point back to, well, actually, you know, we talked about this in the fee agreement or this is here, it can at least diffuse the situation. And then my third would be delegate and get people involved to help you, uh, particularly solos, you have true solos. 
I was a true solo for a long time and all my friends will tell you how hard they pushed me <laughs> to start delegating. I was terrible at it, but it's also life-changing. You can do such a better job for your clients if you're not spread so thin and be a lot less stressed, which is a huge problem in our profession. You, you really just, those three topics are just so fundamental that all lawyers should follow. The communication rule, that probably gets more people, more attorneys in hot water with their clients. Having the fee agreement being clear and written, as well as delegate because you can't do it all. And I wanna welcome one of our mutual friends who's an awesome communicator, and I know he delegates in the office. I can't speak for his fee agreements, but Mitch Jackson is watching us and says hello. Oh, great. Hi, Mitch. In his regards. Uh, for those of you just joining us, Megan Xavier, based out of Atlanta, Alpharetta, uh, handles uh, California-based law-based cases that deal with ethical issues. And we're talking about attorney's ethics, attorney ethics. And I want to kind of shift for a minute, Megan, and talk about the changes that have been in the headlines in the last few months, talking about the change in regulations about legal services to people, more individuals having in certain states, having more abilities to provide certain types of legal services, even though they're not lawyers. So I know that's a big topic, but I know you you and I briefly have talked a little bit about it, but I wanna hear some of your thoughts about the, the trends and things you see that you do like or don't like or some hot water potentials. Well, the trend is definitely towards loosening regulation of attorneys so that we will have some introduction of people who do not have law degrees. I know the term non-lawyers has somehow become politically charged, which well, well, that's a discussion for another day. Sure, <laughs> but, sure. um, you know, having other professionals come into the, the field and be able to give some forms of legal advice. Now, throughout the country, this is a topic that's being widely discussed. Washington State has licensed legal technicians that they started a short while back. They have a small number of them. But other states, too, are looking at how do we start to address this access to justice gap that we have, where if you look at various surveys, you know, the exact number is debated, but it's a wide margin, um, no matter how you look at it. There's a lot of people out there who are dealing with the legal system without a lawyer, and that can't all be by choice. You know, some maybe it is, but a whole lot. They can't afford access to services or don't know where to turn for a lawyer. There's a lot of potential reasons, but they are self-represented. So we're seeing changes in the regulations being discussed that would allow non-lawyer service providers. And, you know, the legal field as a whole, and if you read comments like California had proposals put out there for public comment, if you read the ones from lawyers, it's largely panic. You know, how, how could we possibly, you know, loosen our grip on the profession? We can't do it. Though. Some of them will frame it as public protection, others as lawyer protection. You know, this monopoly we have, we can't possibly lose that or we'll all be destitute. <laughs> and I, I hate those comments because I think they missed the point so terribly. Um, but it is definitely a fear. And so there's a lot of work to be done within the profession to get more acceptance I mean, at some point it's just gonna happen and lawyers are gonna have to deal with it. But also for the public, there's a lot of educating to be done about what's starting to be um, offered or will soon be offered because these programs will fail if 
the professionals we allow to start providing legal services don't get business. Right? If the public doesn't know they exist and start coming to them. That's probably my biggest fear. Well, sure. It's probably the fear of many who are, are who deal with this issue in various states. I want to welcome my mom, Ruth, in Birmingham and my buddy, Clint, in Tuscaloosa. I have a question for you from Ohio. Joanne asks, in those states where legal technicians or whatever their designation may be, non-lawyers or non-approved lawyers, what are those types of services that you've seen that have been permitted in those states that allow for such? Well, so far, a big area where we're seeing some of this is in family law, because mm -hmm. that's yes, a massive number of self-represented litigants and often a real lopsided situation where one party has a lawyer and one doesn't. And of course, dealing with crucial life issues like you know, personal finances and children. So when technicians or paralegals or whatever their title is are allowed into that space, it's often advising on forms, um, directing them towards different processes, sometimes allowing some court appearances, um, but mostly it's counseling and providing guidance through the system. And the, I, I would assume that most communities or larger cities have their version of free legal advice clinics, legal aid society or, or such. Some are free and you just have to prove, I guess, certain financial uh, inabilities to be eligible. There may be others. There's lots of different organizations that have these paid services, but I'm going to assume that most, if not all, of those type of entities have lawyers are the ones who are communicating or, or at least giving out the legal advice. But I yeah. think sometimes, and tell me if this is your experience, Megan, maybe you've seen or read about this, where you have non-lawyers stepping in the place and acting as if they were a licensed attorney. And I think that causes some real problems right there. It does, and sometimes they're very well-meaning Sometimes they are actually licensed to do something but not practice law, such as in California, there are immigration consultants who are allowed to do things like tell you how to fill out a form, help you fill it out, but they can't, you know, just barely step over the line and tell you which form to use. I mean, the, the lines are so fine. And they are often people who have so much knowledge and experience, they know exactly which form you need. And they could tell you exactly how to proceed. Oh, but they're not allowed to. And so they often will step over that line just the way you, you know, almost can't help it having a conversation where you know a bunch of things that are just going to start to come out of your mouth because the person's asking and you know the answer. So we do see that. And unfortunately, it causes a lot of problems for the person giving the advice because they're engaged in the unauthorized practice of law, which is a criminal offense. And not that a whole lot of district attorneys are out there prosecuting an immigration consultant who told you which form to use, but it is a problem. Well, it's sometimes you see where they're charging uh, people for free, for fees and it's really a fraud because they're not licensed, but they're holding themselves out from under uh, somebody else's license or I'm working in conjunction with so-and-so's firm and that firm may have a good reputation. The firm may or may not even know what this rogue person is doing, but I can see where it also becomes criminal because you're you're under a, a fraudulent representation and you're taking money for services that you're not really permitted to charge for. 
Yeah, that that's a huge problem when they actually hold themselves out as licensed, which does definitely happen. And in those cases where you're hired and you're either defending or representing someone who is being accused of some type of ethical issues, what type of a court setting or administrative setting are you actually in where you're representing someone? Well, it varies from state to state. So California is really unique. It has its own state bar court, and it's an arm of the Supreme Court. So like other states, the highest court regulates attorneys directly. But the hearings are all held in the state bar court, and there's two branches, one in San Francisco, one in Los Angeles. So it is dedicated judges, dedicated prosecutors, dedicated courthouse, and all they deal with are attorney regulation issues. So discipline being the primary one, also um, reinstatement proceedings for attorneys who have been disbarred or resigned, and admissions issues for individuals seeking admission to the state bar. But in other states, it'll be um, at, sometimes at an administrative hearing level, other times at the state's trial court level, and some are just directly regulated by the Supreme Court. We have, our, I guess, our version of it in Alabama is the Office of General Counsel. And that's where you can write to the attorneys on staff and ask your questions ahead of time, which is always highly advisable. Rather than asking for, uh, asking for forgiveness, we really should be getting permission for something like this. Uh, and there's so much, here's an example. There's so much new in social media and what lawyers, how they're trying to get the word out that I think it really is kind of the wild west, if you will, because they probably haven't dealt with it in the past. I know there's certain true. issues when I've written to them, they will refer to New York or other states that have dealt with this in the past, but I think it's just kind of pushing the envelope a little further. Didn't know if you had experiences yeah. dealing with that. Yeah, absolutely. We, I give presentations and advise clients all the time on use of social media and other new things. You know, whether it was originally email, can you spam people and how do the rules work here? Or now, you know, what's TikTok? Can I use that to reach people? You know, <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was when I first heard about it from my 10-year-old who said an 11-year-old was obsessed with it, I was like, okay, I think I need to know what this is, but something tells me we're not yet to uh, reaching attorney clients. <laughs> but you know what? They grow up fast. But as we try and deal with these issues, um, we're often extrapolating from the rules that we have to try and figure out how do they apply to changes that have happened far faster than any regulatory changes. So sometimes it'll be that other states have opined. I mean, California finally put out, I mean, I say finally now, it was like 10 years ago, but they put out a, a Facebook, basically a Facebook opinion is how I would refer to it. It was social media ethics opinion that if you read it, like, oh, we're talking about Facebook. But of course they didn't refer to it that way. But Facebook had already been huge for years by the time that opinion came out. So yes, we can now look at it, but for years we were trying, well, I think this rule would probably extrapolate to that, and how do, how do these things go together? And that's basically what we're left with as technology and other advances in our culture happen. We adapt to real life, and then we look back at the rules and go, okay, so how, how would a bar look at this? And we do our best to stay on the right side of it. Well, in a minute, I want to talk about your podcast, but I've got a, a question here for Mitch. How soon should a lawyer get ethics defense lawyer like yourself involved if he or she thinks they may 
have a problem, what should that lawyer look for regarding credentials, rates, et cetera? Well, early is the answer to the first question. I love it when someone calls me and says, this client screamed at me yesterday and I'm afraid it's gonna go bad because then we can often counsel them on how to fix the relationship early. And so often they won't make a bar complaint if you can make them feel heard and you can address their issue early on. I mean, you could save yourself so much grief. I mean, not just financial, but the whole, <laughs> the whole investigation and everything that comes with it. You can often avoid if you consult someone early who will have a cooler head about it because they're not going to care about it the way you do. They're not gonna feel defensive about it the way you do and can guide you through what's the best thing to do. And I can tell you, I've advised many people to do something at that stage that they do not want to do. You know, I don't want to give them their money back. I earned that fee or whatever. But if you can convince them to, oftentimes they're like, oh, well, that actually worked and I never heard from them again. That's a good thing. Um, so yes, early intervention is great. It can also be very inexpensive. So I would say that when you're looking for someone to help you, um, partly it's experience with state bar defense. It is a different world. You know, I call it Wonderland because it feels like you're Alice and you're traipsing through a jungle that where nothing is what you think it's going to be. And a lot of our lawyer skills don't work the same way when you're dealing with bar defense. We eat our own in the state bar discipline system and it's difficult. So I would always recommend finding somebody who actually does this as the primary part of their practice. It's easy to find a lawyer friend to advise you, but if they've never been through it, they're not going to have the same perspective and experience. And I would also look to pay someone for their evaluation of your case. A lot of lawyers in all practice areas give free consultations, right? And they're often worth what you pay for them because I'm, I'm, lawyers will say things like, well, I can't really give you any legal advice because it's just a free consultation. Well, then why are we here? Right. And, you know, I look to establish a relationship with someone um, and someone that you fit with. I think fit is really important. So putting your head in the sand and thinking it'll go away when you come back out of the sand is not not best practice is what you're saying. <laughs> it is not. That's a, a really good way to get a bar complaint. So Absolutely. if that's your goal, Absolutely. sure. <laughs> and I, I would dare say that 90% of lawyers who practice for a living dealing with clients at some point in their career are gonna get some level of a complaint to a formal entity like your state bar, your local county bar, what have you. Is that fair, that that high of a percentage? I think it's really high. Yeah, I think a lot of people will. One of my um, first client reviews online is still one of my favorites because <laughs> one problem in my practice area is no one wants to put their name on a review for the ethics right, lawyer, right? right? Because they're like, well, then everybody knows I had a bar complaint. And he was one of the first ones who was like, oh, I'll do it. I'll put my name on it and I'll tell everyone because good lawyers still get bar complaints. Mm -hmm. And it was like, he was so forthcoming with that and so honest about it. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Just because you have someone complaining about you does not mean you did something wrong. And nor That's does the right. rest of the world necessarily think that either. So yeah, um, <laughs> that's a big issue. Well, Megan, there are so many more topics. I wish we had so much more time, but I know we both, we both have limited time today. So we're getting close to the conclusion of our conversation. And I certainly 
I, I so cherish your, your expertise, your wisdom, and your experience you're sharing with us. It's such valuable information. If people want to reach out to you, whether it's I have a case and I really need you to evaluate this, here's my fee, I mean my retainer, or they just want to listen to your podcast, how can folks find you? I'm kind of all over online, so I'll give you a few options. Um, I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is at Xavier Law. Uh, my podcast is called Lawyers Gone Ethical, which is on like, just about every podcast streaming app. And you can also go to lawyersgoneethical.com to listen online. And my website is zavierlaw.com. And there you can find information about what I do and book consultations and all of that. I'm going to post the link to your website in our show notes here so people can at least find you that way. But before we finish, I want you to tell us a little bit about your podcast. What type of subjects, uh, who, who's been on, uh, not necessarily individuals, but tell us a little bit about it. So it's called Lawyers Gone Ethical because I set out to do a, an attorney ethics podcast. We found that there weren't any out there. Um, our good friend Nicole Abood, who I know is known to many of you on here. We, we um, know Nicole well. Yes. She's well known. <laughs> She's wonderful. Hey, Nicole, and she sat watching. down with me and we said, okay, so who's out there doing a podcast talking about ethics? And we found one old show that I had two episodes ever. <laughs> like, that was it. Like, nobody's talking about this. So I launched it really to just get more conversations going about ethics. We tend to you know, think that, oh, we can just sort of ignore it or push it by the wayside. And, oh, I don't want to talk about that stuff. But it's so critical, as you said, to all of our practices. So we talk about all kinds of things that are happening in the profession, the changes in regulation. It's on many episodes. How to get by in the profession right now as things change, like social media we talk about. I get a lot of other speakers on ethics topics to come in. And then I also really like to dive into the discussions with people who are really deeply involved in how practices run. So like John Grant is one of my favorite episodes. He came in to talk about project management for lawyers. Like how do we avoid having problems by running a smooth practice? So a lot of our episodes really sound more like practice management tips, but underlying almost every ethics violation is some failure of a system or an office practice. Mm -hmm. well, we'll make sure we post a link to the, the podcast as, as well. Megan, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun for me and I enjoyed talking with you today. Well, it's fun for me too. And thank you so much for having me. I, I wish you the best in whichever marathon or obstacle course race or whatever's <laughs> next for you and the family. I'm sure you guys will do great. Thanks, Bernard. Certainly. Guys, this will conclude our con conversation today with Megan Xavier. And what a pleasure. What a pleasure. But thank you for tuning in, whether you're watching us live or you catch us on replay. We try to come to you. We try every Tuesday at 10 o'clock Central, 8 a.m. Pacific. Sometimes the judge just takes precedent and we have to move it a little bit. Hope you guys have a great rest of your week and we'll catch you next week. Take care.